There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the final meeting of the January 6th committee and its decision to refer the already disgraced, twice impeached former president, Donald J. Trump, to the Justice Department for criminal charges. This is still a time of reflection and reckoning. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never happen again. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. The nine-member committee made today's announcement in the Speaker Nancy Pelosi caucus room, an historic name change recently made in her honor, a symbolic victory for the House Speaker whose office was ransacked by insurrectionists who hunted her down and loudly threatened her life. Today's announcement will make Donald Trump the first former president ever to become the subject of a criminal referral from Congress over conduct laid out in detail by committee member and Congressman Jamie Raskin. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. The committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transfer, transition of power. Today's public committee meeting came on an anniversary. It was two years ago today that Trump sent out this infamous tweet. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th, he wrote, referring to the day Congress was set to formally certify Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College. Gonna be wild, he added. It was the tweet that in part led to his second impeachment for incitement of insurrection. And now the House panel investigating him has referred him for four criminal charges, including engaging in an insurrection. Make no mistake, what happened today is a very big deal. It will forever alter the way January 6th is remembered and even shape how our democracy will survive, presuming it does. It's the culmination of the committee's intense 18-month investigation, which revealed to the public televised testimonies that were incredibly dramatic, oftentimes horrifying, and which made the case that Trump aided and abetted those who mobbed the Capitol in a desperate bid to cling to power. It was a somewhat expected conclusion, but also an historic one. And it may finally offer what Chairman and Congressman Benny Thompson called the most important factor in preventing another January 6th accountability. As part of that effort, the committee today summarized, again, in vivid detail, the key evidence the investigation uncovered, from Trump pressuring state officials to overturn the election, to inciting a mob united by one allegiance to keep Donald Trump in power. You're asking me to do something that's never been done in history, the history of the United States, Mr. Giuliani accused you and your mother of passing some sort of USB drive to each other. Uh, what was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. 
feels to have the President of the United States to target you? I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the Vice President to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Another officer unconscious. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, a member of the January 6th committee. And Congressman, thank you so much for being here. And uh, this has been a long, uh, many, many months uh, of investigation, lots of evidence put forward. I'm going to read to the audience the four charges, obstruction of an official proceeding, or the, the, the four things you are referring, I should say, to the Justice Department. Obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting, assisting, or aiding and comforting an insurrection. The aiding and comforting I'm going to ask you more about. The thing I think that stands out for those of us who have watched this this entire time and have seen the related cases that are going on um, from the Justice Department is that seditious conspiracy wound up not being a part uh, of these referrals. Can you just walk us through why that is? Joy, first of all, thanks for having me and for um, being so attentive to these proceedings um, well, we, would it be all right if I just talk about what we did do? And I yes. think that'll bring into sharper relief what we didn't do. So um, the the first charge, 1512C, is um, interference with a federal government proceeding. That was the whole purpose and the whole effect of everything that Donald Trump mobilized in terms of stop the steal, sending the crowd, the mob into the Capitol to obstruct the vote count. Um, and so th that one really fits like a glove. I mean, this was the whole point of what Donald Trump was doing. But uh, the second charge, uh, 371, is all about conspiracy to defraud the government, to interfere with the operations of the government through deceit and dishonesty. And of course, that also captures exactly what was going on. There were counterfeit electors. There was a fake uh, determination that Donald Trump had actually won the election. And then they used that disinformation and propaganda to attack the actual legitimate system of government. The third charge, uh, 18 U.S.C. 1001, is all about filing false statements and false documents with the government. And that was these counterfeit electors that they uh, brought in from different parts of the country, knowing that they were completely false, but attesting that they were true. And then finally, there is the charge of inciting, assisting, and giving aid and comfort to insurrection. And here, any one of those three prongs would constitute violation of the statute. But I think that Donald Trump is actually culpable for all three of them. He clearly incited insurrection when he told the crowd, you got to fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And a series of other very explosive incendiary remarks like that. He assisted them at 2.42 p.m. on January 6th when he knew that the riot had overtaken the Capitol, driven us out of the House and the Senate chambers, driven the vice president out. And instead of using his powers as president to try to get in touch with law enforcement or the military to shut it down, what he did instead was send out a tweet which said, 
Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. In other words, he added fuel to the fire right there. He gave further sustenance to the riot and to the insurrection, but also he gave aid and comfort uh, all along that day and for weeks before and for weeks, indeed, months after leading up all the way to today to the insurrectionists when he said he loved them. They're very special. Always remember this day. Um, promising, uh, you know, the possibility of pardons, a mass pardon for all the violent insurrectionists, talking about how unfairly they're being treated in the justice system and so on. All of that continues this pattern of aiding, assisting, uh, and giving aid and comfort to the insurrectionists. So the one charge that you're talking about that has been brought against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys of seditious conspiracy, a conspiracy to uh, put down or overthrow the government of the United States, um, is a charge certainly that was talked about, and it's one that undoubtedly the Department of Justice will assemble a lot more evidence than we were able to get, because so many people refused to testify to us. Either they just blew off our subpoenas or they came in and they took the Fifth Amendment. What we would need to show there is that there was intent by Donald Trump himself or Eastman uh, himself to engage in violence. And we took a very cautious approach. The committee feels unanimously that there's abundant evidence of all these other charges, but given the constraints put on us by people refusing to testify, we were not able to agree that this was a charge that was fully made, and we decided to stick with what we thought uh, seemed to a certain. Thank you for explaining that, right? Because, you know, I think that the John Eastman, you talked about John Eastman, he's the person who, in all of these hearings, seemed to have had the longest standing plan, whether it was his true belief, because it wasn't always clear whether he thought what he was planning was legal. But you can go all the way back to the year 2000 and him having having this theory that the vice president could simply give, you know, decide what electors he wanted to certify and not certify those of the actual winner. And there's definitely a sense that there was a methodical plan that involved at least trying to pressure Mike Pence to do what Donald Trump wanted done. And then the violence seemed to have been sort of added on top of it. And then the question is whether Donald Trump knew that the violence would be added. I think that's fair. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And Look, I mean, there's one basic way to conduct an honest election, which is to allow everybody to vote, to count all the votes, and then to honestly implement the the uh, victor of the election as the, the winner. There are a lot of ways, as Donald Trump uh, showed, to try to overthrow and undermine a fair election. He went to the legislatures. He went to the election officials. He went to the Department of Justice. They even talked about having the military take over uh, the election machinery and rerun the election because everybody knows that provision in the Constitution. And then finally, they wanted to inflate the powers of the vice president to the size of a Goodyear blimp, something that simply had never been noticed, apparently, for more than two centuries, allowing the vice president essentially to choose uh, the next president. But all of these were ways to try to destroy a fair election. And they 
pursued all of them. So we think that this array of charges captures uh, what took place over a series of many weeks by Donald Trump in trying to subvert and destroy our election and seize the presidency. I have to ask you, just as somebody um, who is serving with some members who participated in or supported the idea of overturning the results of the election, who will remain in Congress, uh, you did refer four members for ethics, um, you know, charges or ethics, at least an ethics investigation. What do you make of the fact, you know, this isn't this isn't like the Civil War, uh, where those members who joined the Confederacy were, were rooted out of government. They are here. And what do you make of the fact that you have ongoing conspirators who are going to serve in the majority uh, in the very House in which you serve? Well, um, we have decided to make a referral uh, of these members to the Ethics Committee for one reason, which is we asked them to come tell us about what they knew about the plot to subvert the election, and they didn't come, so we issued subpoenas against them, and they basically blew off the subpoenas. And we saw that uh, Steve Bannon, for example, was someone who was criminally convicted uh, for violating the subpoena of the U.S. Congress. So I don't recommend that to anybody. Um, under the speech or debate clause, we don't really have the authority to take members of Congress outside of Congress in order to enforce a subpoena, which is why we have to deal with it internally. And we sent it to the Ethics Committee. And the Ethics Committee uh, will have to think long and hard about what to do, because what they are doing is uh, creating a precedent going forward for how members of Congress should respond in the event that they are subpoenaed by Congress itself. And especially in an egregious case like this, dealing with uh, a violent insurrection against the government itself. Let me read a little bit from the executive summary. Um, and this seems to be a very salient point. It says, if President Trump and the associates who assisted him in an effort to overturn the lawful outcome of the 2020 election are not ultimately held accountable under the law. Their behavior may become a precedent, an invitation to danger to, for future elections. The failure to hold them accountable now may ultimately lead to future unlawful efforts to overturn our elections, thereby threatening the security and viability of our republic. If the Justice Department chooses not to act on these referrals and Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party again, one must presume that the vast majority of Republicans elected and not, whatever they're saying now, will support him again. What is your fear that he will just do this again if the Justice Department doesn't do it? You guys are saying that that's the reason that you're doing this. Are you concerned that the Justice Department doesn't see it that way? Well, let me look at it from an historical angle and then a constitutional angle. I mean, the historians and the political scientists we've spoken to have been very clear about this. The surest sign of a successful coup coming is a recently failed coup where the coup plotters and insurrectionists got to diagram the weaknesses in the existing structure. And so if there's impunity, if they think they can operate with immunity and uh, under the cover of darkness, then they are undoubtedly going to come back again. So I think that everything we know about what's taken place around the world with coups and what's taken place historically tells us that there must be consequences and not just for the hundreds of foot soldiers who are already facing the music and many of whom have already been convicted or pled, pled guilty, but also for people all the way at the top, the masterminds and the ringleaders. But constitutionally, the answer to your question is right there in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. 
After the Civil War, during the Reconstruction, it was the Republican Party which insisted that anyone who has sworn an oath to support the Constitution, but who violates that oath by engaging in insurrection or rebellion, may never hold federal or state office. Again, that's a constitutional disqualification from office. So my colleague Liz Cheney today said that uh, you know, Donald Trump was ethically unqualified, which is absolutely true, but he's also constitutionally disqualified from holding office, having participated in uh, insurrection. And I hope that that is a discussion that America is ready to have. I, I think we are absolutely ready to have it. We must have it if we're going to remain a republic. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And up next on The Readout, more on today's serious legal implications for Trump and his most rabid supporters. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We propose to the committee advancing referrals where the gravity of the specific offense, the severity of its actual harm, and the centrality of the offender to the overall design of the unlawful scheme to overthrow the election compel us to speak. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. Question of whether or not to pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump is now in the hands of the Department of Justice. In addition to the ongoing prosecutions of numerous schlubs who did Trump's bidding on or leading up to the siege on the Capitol. As today's final committee meeting was underway, so was jury selection in the seditious conspiracy trial of five members of the right-wing extremist group the Proud Boys. Former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio is charged along with four other defendants, Ethan Nordeen, jo- Joseph Biggs, Zachary Rell, and Dominic Petzola. The Proud Boys trial opens less than a month after Oath Keepers leader Elmer Stewart Rhodes was convicted, along with one of his lieutenants, of seditious conspiracy. More than 900 people have been criminally charged in the Justice Department's largest investigation in U.S. history. The question now is, what does the DOJ do about the man at the center of it all? Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst, and Maya Wiley, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and former assistant U.S. attorney. Thank you both for being here. I'll actually go to you first, Barbara, since you have the, you have the disadvantage of not sitting here with us at the table. These are the four things. I'm going to put them back up. Obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and um, inciting aid as assisting or aiding and giving aid and comfort to an insurrection. These seem pretty open and shut to me. I'm not a lawyer, but they seem like 
They sound like what was described as Donald Trump's conduct. I did ask uh, Congressman Raskin about the kind of dog that didn't bark here, the dog that didn't hunt or whatever the saying is. And that is seditious conspiracy because we've seen it's not easy to convict on that either, apparently. But we've seen a conviction on that. I just want to read you a little bit of the executive summary here about the violence that took place. That's the connection that would need to be made. Secret Service confiscated a haul of weapons from the 28,000 spectators who did pass through the magnetometers. 242 canisters of pepper spray, 269 knives or blades, 18 brass knuckles, 18 tasers, six pieces of body armor, three gas masks, 30 batons or blunt instruments, and 17 miscellaneous items like scissors, needles, screwdrivers, and thousands of others possibly remained outside the magnetometers left outside. We know that there was Cassidy Hutchinson testimony that Donald Trump was demanding that the mags be opened and that, quote, his people be allowed through. They were armed. Talk to us about the Justice Department's decision-making here, because they've already convicted some people on seditious conspiracy. They now have a referral on four other charges. If you're in the DOJ right now, which way do you go? Well, Joy, I think it's really important to determine whether they have evidence that links Donald Trump and his inner circle, you know, the Willard Hotel war room with the planning for the physical attack. So far, we've seen some hints of it, some circumstantial evidence of it. We've got Roger Stone and Mike Flynn photographed with some members of these groups on January 5th. But to, to this day, we do not have that direct link saying that Donald Trump planned in advance this physical attack. It may be that the Justice Department is able to do that. They have some investigative tools not available to the January 6th committee, like search warrants and the grand jury. They can immunize witnesses. They can offer cooperation credit. So they may be able to develop that yet. But I thought the committee actually did uh, a very good job here in not overcharging. I think if they had included seditious conspiracy without that direct link of evidence, they would have been accused, accused of overcharging. Instead, what they present is something that's, I think, restrained. The obstruction of an official proceeding is a 20-year felony, same as seditious conspiracy. So I don't think they're giving anything up. The one thing that they did include here that surprised me and is an aggressive charge is inciting insurrection. Mm. But I had always framed that in the view of the January 6th speech on the ellipse. And I thought that that was probably a bridge too far only because the Supreme Court has set such a high bar when it comes to giving fiery political speeches. But they focused on that. But in addition, they focused on the 2.24 p.m. tweet where he tweets about Mike Pence not having the courage to do the right thing and USA demands the truth. He did that while he had been watching for hours the attack unfold at the Capitol. And so in that instance, I think they do meet the very high bar of inciting imminent lawless action with a likelihood that that attack would result. So I think that this is uh, the kind of charge that the Justice Department, all of them, will take and consider very seriously. You know, and my, I mean, what, what's sort of fascinating about the way that they put, they laid this out, mostly with Republicans testifying here, is that Donald Trump was in, uh, unhappy with the official advice he's getting from the Justice Department. They're telling him there's no there there. You lost. And that's it. And so he starts hunting for other people. He finds Rudy Giuliani. He's willing to do it. And he finds this John Eastman guy who he says is a brilliant guy. He's going to get me what I need. And then there is this part of the executive summary that says that whatever then happened, he wanted to be a part of it. 
The committee principal concern was that the president actually intended to participate personally in the January 6th efforts at the Capitol, leading the attempt to overturn the election, either from inside the House chamber, from a stage outside the Capitol or otherwise. There's no question from all the evidence assembled that Trump did have that intent. So he wants to go and supervise or sort of preside over the chaos that is taking place there. What does that tell you? And what do you think DOJ does with that? Well, it certainly tells you, one, that Donald Trump is responsible for what we saw on January 6th, that it's critically important that we hold him accountable. And the question for DOJ is, do they have enough for that particular charge? Right. I mean, because, look, here's the thing, and I, I think Barbara's absolutely right. There is evidence here, and it, a lot of it is circumstantial important because circumstantial evidence is still evidence. But at the end of the day, the reason they got the Oath Keepers, the reason they got Stuart Rhodes, the reason they got Kelly Meggs is they had people who flipped right. on them and testified against them who could say and point them to what they said mm -hmm. and how they understood that they were going to be engaged in violence. And there was no question about it. I think here what we have is certainly a lot of evidence whether or not they will deem it sufficient to win over a jury is the real question here, but not whether or not there's evidence and not whether or not Donald Trump's response. Because prosecutors want to, they, they, they're only going to charge what they, they can convict on, Correct. not what they can get a charge on. Let's play really quick. This is Hope Hicks, which we hadn't heard before, uh, and former Air, White House lawyer Eric Hirshhorn discussing the idea of violence at the Capitol. Take a look. When you wrote, I suggested it several times, and it presumably means that the president say something about being nonviolent. He wrote, I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. Mr. Hirschman said that he had made the same, you know, recommendation um, directly to the president um, and that he had refused. Just so I understand, Mr. Hirschman said that he had already recommended to the president that the president convey a message that people should be peaceful on January 6th, and the president had refused to do that. Yes. Barbara, what does that say to you? I mean, it, it seemed very clear that at minimum, Donald Trump had no desire to help stop the violence until he was he, at the absolute last minute. But this is an implication that he didn't even want to include in his speech that people should be nonviolent. Yeah. And that's a pretty interesting um, insight right there, because remember, he did include the word peacefully, which I thought was an important word that could actually help him a lot. Uh, because it, it gives him some deniability that when he said we're going to march down to the Capitol, that he meant it literally, that we yeah. were going to bust down the doors and bust inside. I just meant we would stand out there and protest. So really interesting about his intent. I don't know that this makes his speech more or less criminal, but I do think it is important information about his intent, that he was uh, intent on riling up the crowd uh, as much as he was. And so I think that is important. But as I said before, I think the real key to this, and it's a, it's a genius move, is including that 2.24 p.m. tweet in addition to the speech at the ellipse, because I think the ellipse speech sounds a lot like real traditional stump speeches, mm -hmm. even though it gets a little uh, a, a, a little hot. But the tweet where the, the, the battle is underway and you know what's going on, you know they're chanting, hang Mike Pence, and then he throws that fuel on the fire. I think that one is really the one that... Uh, could cause him some serious well, uh, challenges. Speaking of tweets, this is the two-year anniversary of the December 19th tweet. 
It's going to be wild. He's probably going to regret that one because normally he doesn't write things down, but he sure did write that down. Barbara McQuaid, Maya Wiley, thank you both. Still ahead, the wider conspiracy, what the committee's referral could mean for the likes of John Eastman, Mark Meadows, Jeffrey Clark, and Rudy Giuliani. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Well, Donald Trump lit the flame, poured gasoline on the fire and sat by in the White House watching as the fire burn, as the committee said today. He had many willing conspirators, co-conspirators. Top of that list was on the top of that list was disgraced lawyer John Eastman, who provided Trump with a dubious legal argument to steal the election, including the idea that Pence could just declare that Trump was reelected. In its report, the committee noted that Eastman, prior to 2020, acknowledged that Pence had no legal authority to do that, and he had told Trump as much. That is key to the committee's referral of Eastman to the Department of Justice for impeding an official proceeding and conspiring to defraud the United States. Eastman was not alone. While he was tasked with creating the legal framework for stealing the election, it was people like Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, personal counsel Rudy Giuliani, and others who were tasked with making sure it actually happened. Remember Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro had an official plan in place called the Green Bay Sweep, which involved getting key congressional players to delay and debate the election results, plunging the House into chaos and allowing Republicans to declare Trump the winner. The committee voted to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department for former President Donald Trump, lawyer John Eastman, and unspecified unspecified others. Joining me now is Eugene Robinson, columnist at The Washington Post and an MSNBC political analyst, Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian, and Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and former spokesman for the Republicans on the House Oversight Committee from 2009 to 2013 before he left the party. Um, Eugene, I want to start with you because... The Eastman piece is so key. He's the guy who for 20 years had this cockamamie idea that you don't have to worry about the voters. You can just have the Congress pick the electors. And so here, here's Donald Trump praising him as a great intellect for that. Don is one of the most brilliant lawyers in the country. And he looked at this and he said, what an absolute disgrace that this could be happening to our Constitution. And he looked at Mike Pence, and I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. Then when he came before the January 6th committee, he pleaded the fifth a bunch of times. And then this was the advice that he got from Eric Hirschman, who was a White House lawyer at the time. Take a listen. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right. I said, I... 
said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. Eventually, he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great FN criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. You know, Eugene, I I miss the days when conservative (laughs) scholars and intellectuals sat around debating ephemera about the Constitution. Now it appears they're forming legal frameworks that it's not even clear whether they believe them or not on how presidents can win elections without winning them. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty clear that John Eastman didn't really believe it, didn't really believe this was going to work. But he thought it was plausible enough to try to get it through uh, and steal an election. I mean, and, and so, you know, conspiracy to defraud the United States, I'd say that's defrauding the United States. I would uh, add that President Trump's entire political career was an exercise in defrauding the United States. But I digress. <laughs> um, uh, just to, to your point, um, uh, it is, it, it, you know, remember when Judge Luddick testified uh, before the, the panel and there you heard a genuine conservative jurist. I, might, I don't agree with a lot of his views about the law, but he a principled man um, who wanted to follow the Constitution and follow the law. Uh, and they, there seemed to be very few of his kind left. Well, and, you know, Kurt, it does feel like there's been a sea change in the Republican Party from that sort of old school type of Republican who just constantly claimed, you know, we we care most about the Constitution and reading it as the the founders, you know, intended it and that sort of thing to this newer class of Republicans who they're outcome driven. You have Donald Trump fishing for people who will tell him what he wants to hear. He goes to Giuliani. He says, well, Giuliani doesn't seem to believe it either. He's like, why? Fine. We're willing to do it. We're willing to just try to convince members of Congress that they should throw chaos into the election cycle, and then they can just decide it inside Congress. But they seem to be fishing for sort of an intellectual basis to do just to get the outcome they wanted because they know that they didn't win and that they can't win. Yeah, I mean, it's a far cry. I remember when I worked in Republican politics and in Congress, the Republicans always made a big show of having those pocket-sized constitutions that they carried with them and would use really as a prop and a device. And they leaned on that and came up with that phrase, constitutional conservative, to describe their ideological core. And here we are, and even since January 6th, since all this happens, we have a guy who still is the leader of the Republican Party, in my opinion, who just recently said he wanted to literally shred the Constitution. Let's just tear it up and throw it out. That The circumstances of today call for such an extraordinary act. And no one really spoke up about that. No one really has gone after Donald Trump for that in the Republican Party. I can only imagine the venom and fear that we would have seen from Republicans if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden made a similar statement. They would lose their minds. Yet when Donald Trump does it, they're quiet. They're hiding from it. They're trying to ignore it, pretend like it didn't happen. That tells you everything you need to know about how far the Republican Party has strayed from those days where they carry those pocketbook-sized constitutions. You know, it does feel, um, Hugo, and I don't know if this is in, in, as you're talking with Republicans on Capitol Hill, like the John Eastman, who's always been pretty far out there on his ideas about the way elections ought to work, and the Roger Stones of the world are now the sort of intellectual center of the party, and that the old intellectual center, the sort of Reaganite center, they, they have no power whatsoever. And that's this new crew is who's who's going to be in charge in the House. 
Yeah, I mean, look no further than the current Republican conference and Kevin McCarthy's struggle to be a speaker in the next Congress. I mean, he's really being held hostage by the Freedom Caucus. And even though he has all the establishment Republican figures on his side, that has proven to be insufficient in order to lead um, the entire House Republican conference. I think that's particularly evident, um, you know, through Trump. But even now in the post-Trump era, you're seeing Republicans still tied to this kind of MAGA far-right ideology. And it's really now the core of the Republican Party, at least, I think, in the House. Uh, and, you know, it did start, I think, with Trump pushing uh, Republicans and his aides and his lawyers and his allies to this new level where they want to win at any cost or they want to try and uh, make themselves win at any cost. And that was always the fundamental part of Eastman's uh, plan for January 6th. You know, he admitted in emails to the vice president's counsel that he knew what he was doing was illegal and he still wanted Pence to go through with it. And he couldn't understand why he wouldn't. You know, Eugene, it, it strikes me that the kind of the, the unsaid thing here is that going back to 2000, this crew understood that demographically they were going to have challenges being able to win the presidency mm -hmm. again, yes, ever, did. right? And they understood that winning majorities in the popular vote was going to become harder and harder and harder as demographic change happened. And Trump is the demographic change rage candidate who comes in and says, you know what, here's the solution. We just won't count anybody's votes. We'll just decide on our own. It does right. feel like that's the thing that the Republicans aren't facing. That's what they're not addressing. They've got a demographic exactly. problem and they can't fix it just by stealing elections. Exactly. And so we have had an at least 20 year campaign, for example, of voter suppression, of voter ID and other laws implemented almost coast to coast to make it harder for black people and brown people and young people and, you know, and women to vote. I mean, they simply they make it harder for Democratic constituencies to vote. We've had uh, an elevation of, of, of the science of gerrymandering uh, to the point where um, they they get to pick their voters. And so the, the result is the Republican Party has, you know, a more power than it should have demographically. Um, and, and B, um, you you essentially have two Republican Party's in power right now. The party in the House that's elected in these gerrymandered districts and the Republican Party in the Senate, which has to run statewide uh, and has to at least be within sight of reason. Right. They can't just go completely Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and, and, and expect to win statewide, as we saw in the well, it, it is interesting. And so you get to the point where their answer is to say that the you know long dead president of Venezuela is using heat lamps in Italy to, to flip the elections and convincing <laughs> millions and millions and tens of millions of people that that is actually true. Uh, OK, Gene, Jewish space lasers, spa the yeah, Jewish space Jewish lasers, space lasers. Uh, <laughs> Eugene, Hugo and Kurt are sticking around because up next, the January 6th committee made another referral today for the House ethics panel to discipline Kevin McCarthy and three other members of his caucus over their refusal to cooperate. We're back after this. None of the subpoenaed members complied, and we are now referring four members of Congress for appropriate sanction by the House Ethics Committee for failure to comply with lawful subpoenas. 
Those four Republicans the committee referred to the House Ethics Committee are notably still sitting members of Congress and will exercise real power when Republicans assume the majority starting in January. There is Scott Perry, one of the members who sought a pardon from the former president for his role in overturning the election. Andy Biggs, who currently sits on the Oversight and Judiciary Committees, who styles himself a candidate for speaker. Jim Jordan, who's expected to become the chair of the Judiciary Committee when Republicans take control of the House next year. And Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy, potentially the future House Speaker, if he manages to survive the Republican Hunger Games. Eugene Robinson, Hugo Lowell and Kurt Bardella are back with me. Hugo, I'm going to go straight down the middle to you. Uh, What is the chatter around these four who will be exercising power, particularly Kevin McCarthy, uh, given the fact that they've now been referred for ethics charges? I think they, uh, they're breathing a sigh of relief that they weren't referred for criminal contempt of Congress. I think that was the one thing that a lot of these members were worried about. Um, but House, you know, a referral to the House Ethics Committee isn't nothing either. Uh, you know, let's see what the House Ethics Committee does. They're kind of limited in what they can kind of do in terms of holding these members accountable. You know, they could recommend a censure or they could uh, recommend some sort of other action in the next Congress, potentially. Um, but, you know, it does raise this kind of really interesting point about if in the Republican majority House, uh, the chairman of the House Ethics Committee is referring the potential speaker, i.e. Kevin McCarthy or Andy Biggs, for censure. It does put the Republican Party in a really difficult position because it quite clearly makes them look like they're doing wrong and criminal activity. Uh, you know, this was a lawfully issued subpoena. And even though they don't get referred to the Justice Department, not complying with a subpoena, as the American public knows, is technically a crime. Well, I mean, how is this going to work at all, Kurt? I mean, you for sort of House oversight, for instance, uh, they didn't. Um, th- this is why they're being referred, right? Because they ignored subpoenas on House oversight. One presumes they're going to be issuing subpoenas to do all of their silly investigations of Hunter Biden or whatever. And then should people just ignore them? Because they've set the precedent to ignore them. Yeah, I mean, this is the hypocrisy run amok here. Uh, Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy, they've made it no secret that their entire agenda for 2023 is to launch investigation after investigation targeting the Biden administration. I'm not entirely sure how you can issue a subpoena with any credibility when you've spent the last year ignoring congressional subpoenas, going to court suing to try to prevent even compliance with congressional subpoenas, doing everything you can to obstruct a congressional investigation. How in the world do you expect anybody to take seriously your oversight inquiries when this is how you have treated oversight ever since Donald Trump came onto the scene? We've heard this entire time, them whining and complaining, everything about closed door depositions and uh, not legitimate subpoenas and all of this belly aching. And now they want everyone to turn around and take them seriously. And I think what they are counting on, Joy, they are counting on the fact that the media won't hold them to that standard, that the media won't point out that context when they launch their investigations and that they'll get away with it. And we have to make sure that doesn't happen in the yeah. Democratic Party. Well, some, some of us will. Some of us are going to ask you every single day and every time they issue one. Eugene, you know, I, I, this isn't Friday, so we're not doing who on the week. But if I was doing it, I would say Speaker Pelosi. Uh, not only is the hearing room where this uh, hearing took place today called the Nancy yes. Pelosi, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi hearing room. First time a woman has had that. But she formed this committee in good faith. And it was Kevin McCarthy, the potential future speaker, if he survives the vote, who said no. No, I want to put obstructionists on. And she said, you can't do that, sir. And he took the folks off of the committee who could have been sort of a reasonable sort of counter, something that maybe would have been more satisfying to Republicans. Instead, he winds up with Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. And that was his fault. 
She winds up with a committee that had an incredible success at presenting Republican witnesses against the former president. Your thoughts? Yeah, that was another one of Kevin McCarthy's really smooth political moves. It was really dumb. Um, you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, rejected two of, I believe, there were five um, uh, nominees that Kevin McCarthy put up because um, they were they were people who were potentially involved in the conspiracy. Uh, so they shouldn't serve on the committee. And instead of replacing them, McCarthy said, oh, I'll just cripple the committee um, by t- taking all the members off. And then I'm, I can call it partisan. Well, it, it ended up being uh, bipartisan because uh, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney uh, uh, became members of the committee. Uh, and it did uh, a, a better job, certainly than Kevin McCarthy expected, and frankly, than I think anyone expected in bringing this investigation to life and presenting it to the American people in a, in a way that was impactful and digestible. It wasn't, you know, just a bunch of, of, of people on a dais going blah, blah, blah for hours on end. They used video, they used video testimony, they used um, video of the actual insurrection. They um, it's very effectively um, produced this presentation for maximum impact. And and it did have the impact, and people did watch it and pay attention. Uh, and no, there were no dissenting voices in the room because Kevin McCarthy didn't want any dissenting voices in the room, didn't allow any in the room. So it's really on him. Uh, Kurt, one of the people he wanted to put on the committee was one of the people who was involved, Jim Jordan. <laughs> Jim Jordan, who is now being referred on ethics charges because he ignored subpoenas. That's one of the people that he actually wanted to have on the January 6th committee. Yeah, this entire thing, and Gene's right here, it's in part thanks to Kevin McCarthy and his political brilliance of deciding not to seat members of his own choosing. And let's be clear, I've been a lot part of a lot of investigations and oversight inquiries. This is the most nonpartisan investigation in United States Congress history. When you consider that we had Republican members, a unanimous vote to move this uh, referral outside of the committee, and you consider the fact that most of the witnesses were all Republicans. Hey, let me just say, I'm one of those guys that's rooting for Kevin McCarthy to be Speaker of the House. Keep going, Kevin. This is working out great. Adam Kinzinger and Jamie Raskin have probably never voted for the same thing in their entire congressional careers. They agreed on this. Eugene Robinson, Hugo Lowell, Kurt Bardella, thank you all very much. And that is tonight's readout. Uh, stay right there, though, because after a really quick break, I'll be joining Rachel Maddow, Alex Wagner, and Ari Melber for a recap special of today's committee meeting. You do not want to miss it. Don't go anywhere. Get some popcorn. <laughs> Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.